Welcome to our next episode of the Five Moments of Need Performance Matters series. This is Bob Mosier, one of the many co-hosts you'll meet throughout this series. So friends, are you trying to learn more about the Five Moments of Need? Maybe how to design for them, implement for them, measure them and even sell them as an approach to your enterprise. Well, in the Performance Matters series, we will help you better understand the theory and best practices behind this powerful methodology and offer proven ways to put the five moments of need into practice. Hey friends, welcome back to another Performance Matters. Bob Mosier here, one of your co-hosts. It's an honor to be here. And we have a gentleman back by popular demand. <laughs> He's doing a command performance for us because his stuff is so wonderful. He's a hero of mine, become a very dear friend. Very few people in our business need very little introduction. In my opinion, this is one of them because of the great work he has done. Guy Wallace, it's great to have you back for 2.0. Thank you, Bob. Should I be wearing waders? I feel like getting <laughs> deep in here, but uh, <laughs> no, it's all, carry on. It's all my good. And, and just so the folks listening, be warned. We talked for a good 20 minutes before this, and we are <laughs> we are warmed up to this conversation because here's where we're going. And here's why we brought Guy back. He did such a stunning job the first time with us in understanding the principles of this. He's been a practitioner forever, huge advocate, does a brilliant job explaining it, has a methodology that fits to this. From all the work he's done his whole life, he's a practitioner, not a theorist in some ways. I don't want to be, I'm not bashing theorists, but he's taken it to a, what Khan would call an RWE. He has a real world experience in the entire thing, not just the pedigree he brings. Let's kind of bring part of our earlier conversation into this thing. That what frustrates me, it's one thing to nod and smile. It's one thing to get it. You and I both understand that this is not for the faint of heart, but we do know that it is doable. We do know that it is it's systemically repeatable. But implementation and change management are Herculean parts of this for L&D as an industry because of our pedigree, our past, and frankly, our habits, proven or otherwise, that we found our way in. So friend, you are back to help us debunk some of these things and share your experience. Let's run at this right away with this whole idea about this is really a new vocabulary. If I hear one more L&D person tell me I want to stop being an order taker, you know, fine. So my answer to that is, okay, well, then you got to do some stuff. If you don't want people walking in your office want, asking for five days of training um, with no conversation, no dialogue, no true analysis, then you got to change, right? So they don't know us in that role. What would your advice be to those folks that are trying to get over that hump of that perception of our industry? Well, when you're starting off, I think that you're at a kind of a disadvantage because people know your past history or have certain expectations about you. And I remember the late Joe Harless in 1985 talking to an NSPI conference group about, you know, because he was getting tired of hearing all this thing about pushback, don't be an order taker. And he <laughs> said, so he didn't like that. And he said, you know, so don't say in your whiniest voice, are you sure it's a training problem? <laughs> My thing is that, you need to take the order. You need to clarify the request. You shouldn't challenge the request mm. uh, harshly or gently. I mean, you're part of a service organization. You are in place to serve the organization and provide them with what they need. Learning and development or instruction or training or, or whatever you want to call it. You know, To me, it's really what used to be called job aids and training is now performance support and learning experience design. So fine, but that's what we need to be providing to people. And when we challenge people prematurely, when we don't have any data 
that just doesn't sound like we're a team player. So we kind of get off of that. So I think uh, all this begins with an intake process, a worthy intake process that clarifies the request. You know, so what is it that you're wanting? Who is it for? Why this and why now? And who are the key stakeholders? You know, do you have any data measurement? Uh, what are we trying to affect? But don't try to get locked into that prematurely because you want to use that information you gather from the intake process so you can do a draft project plan. Hmm. So you share that with, I like to form a project steering team hmm. to say, pull together all the stakeholders, you know, and at the level where maybe if we are very successful, this is going to have a positive impact on their bonus. Okay, so they've got some skin in the game. That's their stakes. They have organizations that they're running. They want to see performance improve. They may ask for learning or instruction because that's what we're kind of there to provide, but they really want business results in their business metrics. They want improvement there. They don't want a meager improvement. They usually want a significant improvement. And so if we can get in aligned with their requirements, their situational and their needs, then we can craft a project plan and we can ask for the right resources. I like to pull together a project steering team because I want their best people, what I call master performers hmm. and other subject matter experts, because perhaps we need somebody from the law department or regulatory affairs or quality or safety. You know, we need other people besides the people that are already doing the job to a high level of performance because we want other people to emulate them when we're all said and done because we want to focus on performance. And these are the people that know how to do that. So we want to make sure that we're getting the right sources for our inputs to design and development. So it all starts off with forming this project steering team, having the stakeholders name the names, hmm. the ones who can pull them out of the woodwork, get them involved in our project, whereas their immediate boss may not want to give them up and they may want to say, hey, we'll send Guy Wallace, you know, it won't hurt if he's gone for a while. So I want to get the right people, get the right people on the bus, so to speak, and then conduct an analysis with them and do it quick, but focus on who's the target audience. What can we safely assume about what their job tasks are? Is there any variance because they've all got the same job title or is it all the same? Uh, what do they already know coming in the door? What do we know from recruiting and selection? What kind of uh, knowledge and skills do they already have from their education and experience? And then we want to focus on what are the the within the scope of what we're doing what performance and i was taught from the very beginning don't look at behaviors don't look at knowledge and skills don't look at topics look at outputs that are produced people are on the payroll to produce outputs they perform tasks behavioral tasks cognitive tasks that requires certain knowledge and skills for them to do the task performance to produce a worthy output which is an input downstream to internal customers or external customers or whatever. But if we can focus on that output and how can you tell a good one from a bad one, who are the stakeholders for that output? What are their requirements? There's the downstream customer, of course, but there's also maybe regulatory affairs protecting us from the regulators who have concerns about that output. There's other stakeholders for the process itself that generates that output. You know, there's people who care about child labor laws. They don't mm -hmm. care they just care about that. The world of stakeholders and the requirements can be a little bit scary and intimidating, but that's how we measure success yeah. ultimately yeah. is that we meet those stakeholder requirements. That's where our measures come from in terms of were we successful. 
And so we need to kind of start with that and we need to get ready. It's ready, aim and fire. So getting ready <laughs> with the process and working with the project plan and a steering team and getting the right resources identified. Because if you conduct this performance analysis and what are the enablers and you discover that a gap analysis is caused by something other than knowledge and skills. So there's other interventions that are yeah. going to be required for the customer to reach success. You don't want that to be on you, the learning and development professional and practitioner. You want that to come from their handpicked sources where the master performers tell you, well, there's this huge barrier, but we work around it. We don't follow the company policy procedures. We don't do that because if we did, we get stuck and never get out of there. So we go around that. And that's sometimes enlightening. Yeah. A little bit worrisome to the stakeholders who go, okay, we got a bad process here. And our top performers are finding workarounds. And either we train everybody to work around our problem process or we fix the process, mm. which take forever and a day and a lot of money. And so maybe we do need to teach everybody the workarounds yeah. that are situational and not, you know, every time, but if there's certain variables in the performance context, maybe that's what they need to do. Anyway, sorry, long answer. No, it was, it's awesome. And, and so when people hear all this, it's a, you said it's a bit daunting. It clearly is a mind shift change. They're naturally looking at their portfolio. They're naturally looking at what does come through the door to them, the things that they often deliver, the content areas that they have some expertise in, or maybe a longstanding experience with stakeholders in because they've done multiple classes or whatever. Where do you start? I think we get this all the time. What should I consider when I'm thinking about my first project at dipping my toe in this? Because they're new to it too. They're anxious about failure on their side. They'd like to have 20 under their belt, but there has to be that first one. Yeah. What's your recommendations around that first one? The first one should be the next one, unless <laughs> there are reasons to avoid it. You don't want to take the project from Hades or hell, right. but maybe you do. If you have some confidence, if you think you can do this, then you want to take on something that's meaningful, not some low-hanging fruit project that doesn't really matter because, ah, you just got lucky that time or, you know, right. it's no deal in the first place. When I have clients and they want me to start doing something like this, I say, let's pick something significant. What have you got that looks hairy? You know, <laughs> go ahead that one. Let's do that here. And then we'll really prove something when we prove it. But that's can be daunting. And, and so you take whatever is coming in next and you just want to take and uh, instill this performance orientation. You try to talk in the language of the customer. You don't use all of our L&D jargon. You save that for conferences and such. But <laughs> talk with your customer, you need to learn their lingo because every customer has its own process with outputs. And so you want to really understand that and a lot of times, you know, when I, if I get a request from a client and they want to talk, want this to be on a topic, they bring me a topic they want me to address. Right, right. You know, I do my best active listening to make sure that, the, and, and I repeat back what they, what they asked for so they understand that I'm aligned to what their request was. But then I may shift and say, so what would practice look like? What would people produce in a practice situation? What kind of feedback might we give them? And get them to think about the application. Yep. Um, and get them to think about, you know, we're going to teach them some stuff so that they can apply that. And we want that to be as authentic to the real world work as possible. Hmm. Sometimes the, the request comes in and it's really for a very broad audience and it's a topic or it's a behavior that actually plays out in different performance contexts very differently. So we bump into that as soon as we can to say, you know, 
if we don't have authentic practice with corrective and reinforcing feedback, it's less likely to transfer because we haven't given anybody that experience. So yeah. Yeah. it may necessitate that we do some, some instructional and learning and then have different practice exercises for the different audiences. And we begin to tee that up by asking about what would good practice look like that what people need to do on the job. And so if we all start focusing on that, what would practice look like? We can back out what do we need to teach them or tell them sometimes it's as simple as telling them, here's the steps, here's the tricky sure. part. Let's go do it, you know, as soon as possible. Let's get into doing it. You know, so the starting point can vary for so many people, depending on people's competence and confidence in themselves in doing this. I mean, that's one thing to, to overcome. Another one is then dealing with clients who have certain expectations. expectations yeah. And it's your own darn management that can get in the way because, they're not too sure about this. They don't understand it well enough. They don't have confidence in our ability to pull this off. They may want to just have us do it the same old way because they're more comfortable with that and doesn't force them to have to explain to others, you know, why are we doing this differently? And, you know, what, what's the point and how will we know this is going to be good? I love where you're going, because I've always loved your shift from topic focused to outcome, right, to performance. And, and again, people come to us with what we taught them to. So they come and say, I need leadership training because that yeah. I need sales training. I bought a CRM. It's a topic driven thing because we have curriculum by topics and LMSs by blah, blah, blah. So you're getting into the whole stakeholder management. This is such a big thing in the change, I think. And you've mentioned some of them. Some of them are internal to our team. Trainers. Yeah. Holy cow. You know, I can't tell you how many trainers I've seen derail these efforts because they were never involved till downstream. Their class went to half the size. It's more activity and practice based, not a hundred PowerPoints, whatever they were used to. And then in the horse box. So help us within your life and your journey. And you've, you've already shared some, but stakeholder management, you do it so intentionally. And, and I don't think l and is as used to it as we've lulled our stakeholders into kind of get what they've always gotten. I think it's a lost art in the change management you're talking about? So this is quite complex. So again, I'm going to go back to the project steering team and getting the stakeholders assembled and then outlining for them, you know, what's the process we're going to use? It could be Addy-like or whatever. We're tied to some other initiative is we're going to use their framework for project planning and management. But, but there's going to be points of what I call gate review meetings, a concept mm. borrowed from the total quality management movement back in the uh, late 70s and early 80s. But so we're going to have a check-ins where they get to check. And what I tell clients on the project steering team is that I'm giving you a command and control mechanism. Mm. And they like that. And I say, but, but on the other hand, it gives me an empowerment mechanism. It gives me a chance to come back and review what we've done so far before we get too far downstream. So you get to check in and improve everything or modify it before we use it going downstream. But this is where I get to challenge you with my questions of things I've uncovered and give you options. Hmm. And what my clients generally hate this because I usually tell every project steering team, you know, you have four decisions at the end of this meeting. One, kill this project because it doesn't make any business sense. My clients go, oh, don't say that. <laughs> but no, I'm a business person here. So basically kill this. This doesn't make any business sense. We're done with it. We thought it was a good idea, but now it doesn't seem to be. Two, defer what we're going to do here because some it's not timely. We need to wait for something else to happen first. So maybe we need to slow down 
put this on the back burner and then start up later, or modify the approach going forward for this next effort, the phase or whatever you want to call it, because now we've got some insight and maybe we need to do it a little bit differently than we had originally planned, you know, so we're being flexible. Or approve this, let's get on with it and give me the resources that I need. That's the empowerment thing I brought up. Yeah, early. yeah. You know, I gave you command and control, but now I want what I need to serve you because this is your project, not mine. This is to your benefit, your organization's benefit, not mine. And so this is what we need. And so now it behooves me to bring the kind of data that they can review, that they can see what's going on. So after the analysis phase, I can show them the analysis data and I can forecast exactly what I'm going to do. I used to tell clients, okay, so you see all this data here that we got. That's the performance. Those are the outputs. Those are the tasks, the roles and responsibilities. Here's the gaps. Here's the gaps that are caused by knowledge. Here's the gaps that are caused by other factors. And we're going to then design and develop later on training that shows people how to get around these barriers, the typical barriers that are out there that master performers have figured out. We're going to steal their best ideas, their strategies, their tactics, and teach them to the next group. Hmm. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to then come up with a design in the next phase. It's going to be 60, 70% hands-on practice with feedback. And I'm going to minimize to nothingness the information that we give people, I'm going to give them the bare minimum, and then I'm going to demonstrate what this looks like because I expect them to go practice it just like we've demonstrated it. Mm. So the demonstration is not necessarily the authentic, real world, all of its complexity. I may show them that too, but I want to show them, and here's what we're, you're going to be doing in the practice exercise that comes up immediately. So that's what that looks like. Now go and practice, and most of the time we're going to practice it more than once because once is never enough. So I would tell clients and the design that you're going to see later after we're done with the design phase is probably going to have an application exercise that I call easy peasy. Then there's one that's difficult. Then there's one that's darn difficult. And then there's one from Hades, which has got all the real world complexity and issues in it because that's the acid test. Yeah. Can you do something like that? And and then the steering team is going, well, yeah, that's exactly what we want. And they look around at the learning and they go, hey, why are we doing this in the back? So if I can buy in the top stakeholders of the client from the requesting organization, that helps pave the way for everything else. Another issue that I always bring up in the very first meeting and every subsequent meeting in the project is, guy, you know, I'm worried about transfer. I'm yeah. worried about who's going yeah. to stop and who, where they're going to come from. Will it be the, the learner's peers out in the job? Will it be their supervisor boss? Will it be some inspector from a regulatory group? Who's going to stop them from doing this here? And I've had clients tell me at the very end of the project, before we're done to release the thing and make it, you know, so everybody can start using it. They'd say, now I understand why you brought up transfer so many damn times, guy. Um, I'd be worrying out loud. You know, some people work out loud. I worry out loud. And, and, and I'd get people to say, oh, yeah, you know, this is going to be different for the supervisors. They won't know how to actually manage this. They yeah. won't be able to plan it. They won't be able to monitor it because it's different enough from what they're used to. And then I would look to the steering team and say, well, you know, that's on you unless we're going to develop training for those people, too. But basically, this is you setting expectations so maybe you should in your monthly meetings or whatever you're doing with these with these groups, you should communicate, we're doing this new thing, it's different. I'm going to expect it to be implemented. 
I'm going to expect you people to act like this and you people here to do this thing. And the people that we're training are going to be doing it differently. And I want that to happen. And you got to communicate that your expectations, and then you're going to actually have to monitor it. Mm-hmm. And then you have to, you know, bring the hammer down on a couple of people, you know, I mean, we, you know, if we really want this done here and there's people who are going to resist this, you've got to remove the resistors or convince them to act otherwise. Otherwise, it's all for naught. And why are we spinning our wheels here? Just kill the project. It doesn't make any business sense. And they go, no, 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 no. We want this. This makes business sense. But I see what you're talking about here. We could have resistors to this. So I thought we're going to have to communicate with them and we're going to have to convince them. And they may have to see it, but we're going to have to actually put this into place and let them see that, oh, this approach can work too. In fact, it can actually work better. So now it's just a question of how does the rest of the receiving organization for this learner who's learned something new and different get plugged back into the organization here where they don't hammer it away? So I got to tell a little story here. (laughs) Rackham, the spin selling guru, I got a chance to work with him when I was at Motorola in 81, 82. So I had a bunch of my manufacturing clients and, and he's a British chap with a goatee and a tweed three-piece suit. And they didn't like him. And uh, he's telling them about how he approaches training and stuff. And he said he could see that it wasn't resonating with them. And he said, play, any of you guys play tennis or golf? And they all did. And they all just were nodding. Their, oh, yeah, yeah, we do. What, you know, what's your point? And he said, do you ever have a, take a lesson from a coach? And they all had. And he's not talking golf or tennis. He's just talking about both of them. He goes, right. did they ever change your grip? And, oh, yeah, 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 that's right. I was, I didn't have, I had the wrong grip. And they, and, and he said, so what happened to ball control after you changed your grip to the right grip? Oh, the ball went everywhere the wrong way. I had no control. <laughs> yeah, so that's why we need coaches who will sustain what you've learned. You know, so basically they're going to say, guy, don't worry about the ball and where it's going right now. Maintain the right grip. And you can keep on using the grip. Oh, you're backsliding again. Get that right grip in there. And pretty soon the results become self-reinforcing. And so that's one of the huge issues that we've got to. When we train people and they learn something new and different and they go back to their world and doesn't quite, quite work smoothly, they need to have the competence and confidence to maintain that. Or we have to train the supervisors or demand that they inspect this and coach guy on maintaining the right grip until Mm. results become self-reinforcing. And so not only do we get individual learners over that hump, we have to get their organizations that they go back to over that hump because otherwise we revert. Well, that's the thing. Some of them send us to us for training, expect them to come back to different behavior, but the world they go back to hasn't changed an iota. That's why bringing up the whole issue of transfer with the people who actually have the power to make it happen. It it is on demand that you let guy come back in here and do it the new way. And I'm going to come down there and talk to guy next week to make sure that everybody's been helpful and him do it. You know, some manner you've got to do this here. Somehow the expectations need to be set, not just the learner, but the learner's environment and everybody in it. And if you have a project, this is part of the secret sauce, I think, is getting the right people to own this project, to see its potential, to have trust in it, and then to make it happen. Because implementation doesn't happen because we help push something out in there. It's got, there's got to be a pull from the top of the organization. And, you know, unfortunately, that's how it works. So 
command and control, you know, I would joke with clients and say, yeah, you think you've got command and control. I'm manipulating you to do what I want you to do. <laughs> well, you're talking an awful lot about business. You're talking all about business processes. You're talking a lot about stakeholders that are much broader than we've brought in the room traditionally. As you've seen this go forward, an L&D team has a learning leader. They have learning managers. They've got IDs. What roles and or technologies, particularly of late, do you think, if I'm listening to this as an L&D leader and I look at my team and I've got the standards, right? I got the IDs. I got the trainer. I got the QAs. I got a graphic artist. I got an admin to my LMS, right? That's been the secret sauce, in our opinion, of the past, so to speak. What mm -hmm. is the configuration going forward? What roles, and maybe not a role, but competency, are we missing or have you seen make this truly work? So I'm going to talk about this in terms of roles, which are like hats. Yep. Uh, you can wear seven hats, mm -hmm. right? Correct. And, and be a generalist and do them all. But if you, there's an army of, uh, you know, a hundred of you or 50 of you, <laughs> you can specialize. Sure. So just like in the IT world or HR world, you know, IT has business analysts and the HR world has human resource business partners. These are the people that are out there, the forward-looking scouts. You know, the cavalry is way behind and the scouts are out there probing and seeing what the needs are, what the situation is. So program managers, mm. can, they can be assigned a part of the organization, job title or functional responsibilities or a set of processes. And they're about all about the care and feeding and making sure that they have what they need, learning and development-wise, performance support when the context allows for a referenced performance response, sure, yeah. a learning experience when people have got to memorize stuff and we've got to really hone a skill. So they're out there looking for that and they would bring in an analyst to do what I call a curriculum architecture or instructional architecture project to figure hmm. out, you know, ISD people versus ID people, instructional systems design, those people were concerned with what's the system of instruction end to end, onboarding and then ongoing in whatever phases or whatever makes sense. To architect the overall instructional system so where you have a top-down view where you can see, we're going to train you on these things. Some of these things are reinforced by the work itself. You're going to be doing this all day long, every day. And some of these things come up once in a blue moon and we can't even predict it. So we're going to have to do space learning for some of those things here to keep the skill, knowledge and skills sharp and at the ready. So a program manager can do those kinds of things and worry about the entire program, the mm. system instruction that we have for people. Then there's project managers. In my company, when I've had staff, I've had up to 25 people on staff before. And my people would have to learn from me how to do project planning and then manage those projects. That's your project. You're going to manage the other people. Now, you might also be the analyst or there might be another analyst on there. And then designers. Two different levels, architectural level, system of instruction versus a product. Mm. The same like in engineering, there's systems engineers and there's product engineers, you know? Yep. So these are not new concepts, except in the L&D sometimes. <laughs> and developers of every stripe for every media and mode that we do this in. We need people who can do video. We need people who can do podcasts. We need people who can do graphic arts. We need people who can do VR, AR. You know, depending on what modes of delivery we are using in the media for those. We need specialists in those things because guy can't be a master of all things. He can maybe be kind of average on a lot of things, but he can't be master of everything. And he's the round peg in the square hole. And we've got to get people that you know fit the job tasks that we want them to do. 
And so then there's facilitators and instructors or whatever you want to call them. And then there's the evaluators, mm. which make analysts be the evaluators. I would evaluate your project when you were the analyst. I'm an analyst too, but I wouldn't allow you then to evaluate my projects where I was the analyst. You'd have to do cons, you know, so we'd mix that up a little bit. So there's no quid pro quo here about, you know, wink, wink, you did a fine job there, Bob. No, we want evaluators who have to bring the same skill set as an analyst to look at what's the business process? What were the metrics associated with that? There's some formal metrics the client's got. There's some informal ones here. We'll have to go in and do a count and frequency and look at the yield of, of certain kinds of work because there's nothing in place right now. We can't put something in place. It's too expensive, but we can go in there and measure it and see what they're doing. The quality world does this all the time with yep. what they call work processes. And so we can, we can put that in place and the evaluator can do it as upfront formative analysis and the summative analysis, same thing, right? You're looking at the same things. It's just, where are you in the overall process end to end? And then of course you need all of your data analysts, your systems administrators, and all the people that worry about the infrastructure that's put in place. So you have this convenient title, which ID or ISD, that really isn't descriptive enough about what we want people to do. want to put people into a job where they have to do everything, then we have to prepare them for that because they're usually not prepared. You know, Deming would have said that 94% of all problems are not due to individual workers. It's due to the system. And who's in control of the system? He'd look around the room. Management. (laughs) LD managers have to put in the philosophies of performance first. Yeah. The processes and the practices that all align to we're going to focus on performance. We're going to measure and report out business results. And if the client wants to know about learning activities, how many butts were in seats or sites or whatever, we can tell them that too. But we're never going to lead with that. We're going to yep. lead with here's where your numbers were to start with. Here's how they were trending up or down or all over the place seasonally. And here's where they are now. And this yeah. is a delta between before and after the intervention. And that's how we prove our worth because we were focused on the outputs. We're getting greater yield. We're getting lower costs. Whatever the business metrics are that were important that the business was probably measuring anyway. Hmm. If we go into narrow with a topic, we we don't understand that. But if we understand that topic relates to a set of tasks and enables those tasks so that somebody can produce an output, aha, there's the output. And so what's the measure for those outputs? Now, the outcome, I've had this argument over the decades. I had an argument at Ford Motor Company with Ford robustness engineers about (laughs) job number one is quality. And so they wanted to talk about outcomes, but outcomes are when outputs meet stakeholder requirements and the customer's happy with leather supple seats and the regulators are happy because you didn't violate any of the regulations and the safety people, they're happy because no one got hurt. Those are the outcomes, but if we focus on the output and what those requirements are, when we meet the stakeholder requirements, we get the outcomes that some people are focused on. So people are focused all over the place on performance, and we've got to try to bridge all those gaps and have them see how what they're concerned about is part of what we're addressing. I love the point you bring us back to, which is that many of these measures 
for many businesses have always been frustrating me when L&D folks go, well, when I talk to my stakeholder, they don't even know what the outcomes are or, and I've always been, I've always kind of struggled with that because whenever I've talked to a line of business manager and said, by the way, what keeps you up at night, they're thinking a lot about outcomes and measures yeah. and productivity and lack of and hitting numbers or not, or exceeding or under exceeding, or that's the nature of the business. We've just not been to what you just described and the roles you laid out, not that involved in that side of the conversation in, in the ways in which you outlined it. This is life-changing for many. I've heard people say those words as they've embarked on this journey, right? And so here's my, we'll we'll end with my pet peeve. This feels too hard. I had a person the other day in talking about all you've described, right? And he basically said, and to his credit, frankly, this just feels too hard. I've invested so much money, so much time in systems and in my own pedigree and all the content we've made to date that's on our LMS or scattered around and so on. It sounds like you're saying you turn my back on all of that. And I don't, and I don't know if we are, but what do you say to that L&D person that here's what you say, the logic in it is, is crystal. You and I've seen it happen and work over and over again. This is not us blowing smoke here from things that we've not seen and others have proven before. What is your word to those who say, it just sounds hard? Well, I guess part of it is it depends on where they're starting from. And if you understand enough about their situation, what's hard sometimes for them to see is the paths forward. And I mean, yeah. multiple paths because you have to be operating on several things. You know, how to get aligned with your customers and work on their high priority things is one alignment area. Another is to put in the processes and practices and the infrastructure in place Yep, will help you make it successful. Then you have to make sure that your people have the learning and development they need operating in your processes and you're using your practices to serve those clients' needs. And it's all can be scary because if you're working on high stakes performance, you know, that's risky. That's risky for everybody. But if leadership is doing their job, and I think oftentimes they're not doing as well as they should, Mm. they need helping the clients understand that we're on this new learning curve ourselves. So Mm. the learning curve and the performance curves, And we're going to get better as we go here. So we need a little grace on the front end here. We may not be as quick as we normally are because this is us. But we have to convince our the leadership. Our leadership has to talk to the client leadership for them to be accepting of this. And if we need to bring in the pros from Dover, as I used to say on the MASH television show, um, (laughs) then, then we can... You know, we can get things happening in a hurry and we can use that as a demonstration for our own people and and help develop them that way by them seeing this in action. So it can be scary and it can be hard, but you've got to start, you know, and you're going to start, I think, on the next project. Yeah. If you could do something reasonably well in a guaranteed amount of time, and maybe this next project isn't the one to do it. But if you want to shift and have a bigger impact to the client, You know, sometimes clients bring us requests because they need a box to check to get the regulators off their back. We got to put them in place. And they're less concerned about what this could be than just getting it done. So we have to be conscious of that, too. There's a a time and a place for this thing here, but we shouldn't be the ones who are hesitant. We should be chomping at the bit to make this change, climb that learning curve, take the organization with us. But it's difficult. My client at General Motors, they did a video with testimonials of people who had been through our projects because they were getting such resistance every time they said, okay, we hear you. 
this is what we're going to do, how we're going to approach this. And clients are going, what? Yep, yep, yep. In reality, it sounded just like an engineering project where you're going to engineer instruction and people are going, well, you know, why do you need to do that? Because they didn't see it as an engineered product. Hmm. That, that learning is an engineered product. It starts hmm. off with requirements. Then you can design things and you can reuse certain components and things like that. That's part of my whole thing was reusing existing information and instruction and using it as is or after modification, but basically trying to shorten the uh, the cycle times and the cost for doing projects because there's a lot of content that can be shared. Yep. So uh, you have to find a hook that what would attract the client? What's the client most interested in? And then make sure that that's cooked into your project. And we can't be perfectionists as we do these things here. There's not just one right way of doing it. You know, I've got a standard model. It looks very intimidating to people. And I tell them, well, I don't know that I've actually used that model exactly like it is. Right, exactly. Because, sure. you know, in hundreds of projects, yep. I've had to change it hundreds of times. Yep. Because it's got to be situationally fit in there. So one yep. side does not fit all. But you have to have some standard process to start with so that you can be predictive of, you know, what's the touch time? What's the cycle time? If you're an outside consultant like I am, you have to give them a price. So getting started requires the help of somebody who's been there and done that. You shouldn't be trying to start this on your own unless you have enough other experience that's similar in nature and you can see your way to go through that. But get yourself some good coaching and take on the next project and just start and don't delay. Great stuff. And as always, and you are a great mentor, my friend, and one to look to. For that guidance. Thanks for all you do, for your, your support in this journey, the way you're out there and courageously fighting the good fight. It helps all of us get better. I'm better for the last 40 minutes of this, as I always am when I read your stuff. How can people get a hold of your follow-up guy? What would be best for them to learn more? Well, you can look at my website, which is epic with two Ps, E-P-P-I-C dot B-I-Z biz. And I've got lots of resources there and I've got a YouTube channel. You can go find that. and. Uh, I've got a whole bunch of books that I've been writing, but I've got a lot of free resources. And But another thing is that look to many people. This is not new. A lot of this has been going on to, since the 60s. Yeah. So lots of lessons learned from a lot of people that you can look towards. And they've published a lot, in fact. And there's so there's a lot of things out there that it will help you guide to figure out how to internalize all of this and make it your own, make it fit your organization. Thanks, my friend. As always, thanks so much for your time and all the good work you do. I'm sure we'll hear more from you downstream, but for now, thanks so much for being a part of this. Thank you for having me, Bob. Well, that's it for this episode of the Five Moments of Need Performance Matters series. We look forward to future conversations around how to best put the five moments of need into practice. We welcome your feedback and can be reached on Twitter using my Twitter handle, at B-M-O-S-H, as well as our Five Moments of Need website, which is www.the5momentsofneed.com. We hope you're finding these helpful and will subscribe to future episodes. Have a great day, friends.